start the clock. Thank you, guys. Did you get that? Somebody give me a thumbs up back there. Uh, just, yeah, no, we're all right. All right, so first of all, thank you. Um, some of you know, some of you don't know, but boy, everybody is sure loving in this place. I, we went back to be with my folks. Um, uh, you know, I mean, they're listening to this, and they know all this, and I'm not saying anything out of turn, but they're old, you know, 88, 89, and things are happening, and lots of things are changing in their lives, and I'm now the oldest son, so uh, after the loss of two others, so Kent, uh, so we got stuff going on, uh, and so I needed to be back there to help them, and the brothers made a plan to try and sort of cover the winter, because that's particularly bad, and just to give you an example of how it could be particularly bad, when we got there, Literally, the night before we pulled in, we, we were meant to pull in, but there were two entire sections of interstate, 170 miles, 190 miles, that were completely closed, water coming over one of them, total ice on the other one. When we got there, over 160-mile-an-hour winds had come down the Tetons and snapped these huge metal power poles like they were twigs, just snapped them. So they had no power for almost a week. Jackson Hole was getting dumped on feet a day and couldn't open because of how bad the weather was. And then it starts raining. So it rains in the day and freezes at night. So it turned it into this just, it was, it was such a mess. It was unbelievable. And it was super important that we were there, that we could help them, that we could do that. And much more important, of course, on the deeper level of helping them make some critical, crucial decisions, which let me just tell you, if you don't know already, God is magnificent. We went there with a trust in our heart that God would show us the way on something that we were really confused what to do and, and had all kinds of reasons for what we were doing. But God just, you know, a man makes his plan, God directs his steps. He directed our steps. And it came to a glorious place that is incredible. I'm just so thankful. It tears me up to think about how much God cares for us in such intimate detail. Having said that, I also want to say, Gene Curtin, I just bow down to you. Thank you so much. Uh, this is a woman who gave me a note, and I said, preach that. And out of obedience only did she come up here. <laughs> and not to me, to God. Okay, And then, to top it off, she shared in an incredibly vulnerable way a journey that God has had her on about how to get over people that are hurting you. And that seems to be something that's pretty useful in our world right now. And it was incredible, the insights on that. I still... I'm feeding off of them. Literally, I'm thinking to myself when I get into situations, the four steps that she gave us. And then the next week, Kevin Prowlis, I, I, didn't, I literally just knew that God had somebody. I didn't know who it was, didn't know who it was, didn't know who it was. And then all of a sudden, like on a Monday before he was to preach, uh, Justine had said something, and I said, is this the guy? And he was, and man, was he. Because he talks about, is Christianity hard or is it easy? Yes. And he showed us in the Trinity how those are both true. And it was remarkable. I mean, just if you didn't see it, watch it, because it'll help you understand God deeper, and that'll help you understand Christianity deeper, and that should be helpful to you. So having said that, uh, I'm going to just be jumping off right where they are and right where God has had us. And you know, if you've been coming and if you're visiting, love having you here and great and all this kind of stuff, it's going to be a Pretty deep sermon, uh, because uh, God, as you know, from the very first Sunday of this year, has been talking about the fact that, that he is the one who has taken a hammer 
to what's happening in our culture. Inside the church, outside the church, everywhere. He has fractured old lines between conservative, liberal, and all this. Everything is just disintegrating in front of our eyes, and everything is up in the air. And I say, very much outside the church, as we can see on Facebook and other places. Praise God, by the way, we're down to you know, a very small percentage of people that are still speaking in ways that are just strictly insensitive. They're just to, to inflame. They're pouring gasoline on a fire. Praise God that we have several people in this congregation who have really taken up the charge to go to another level on it and start talking about what do you do when there's huge differences? What do you do about that? You know, is, like I preached right before I left, is agreement the only way to become one? Well, no, it turns out not. It turns out there's an entirely different thing that God is trying to do with us through this thing. And I'm going to be talking about that next week, but let me tell you why I'm telling you that now. Because I thought that was a sermon I was going to be preaching this week based on the, ser- the, the scriptures that we're in, which is Luke, and we're walking right through Luke and letting God disciple us just like he did the disciples. And we're in these scriptures, and I, God gave me an incredible sermon, and I got the whole sermon. It's, I literally, I don't have to work next week on the sermon because he's already given it to me. Now, who knows what's going to happen, <laughs> right? Because what happened this week was I sat down to write the sermon that God gave me, and literally, he just took it. A man makes his plan, but God directs his steps. He took it, and he completely, he took my intro, which was these verses, and he said, no, I want you to see what's in those verses. And I want you to understand what's in them for you. And I'm just going to tell you, it's incredibly sobering. It's, it's gonna, if, this, if you're coming to have fun today, this is the wrong day. We'll, we have fun. Hopefully we'll have fun next week, okay? Let's come back next week and you have fun. Today, I, I, I'm literally telling you, and I'm, I'm not be saying hyperbole when I say this. What God has done in smashing these lines, not just in America, you know, this is happening all over the westernized world. And I'm telling you what the Lord is telling and what I think he's trying to say to us is hundreds of millions of lives are in play. They're in play because of what he's done. He has changed things in a way that has put them into play. And it's not just hundreds of millions of lives out there. How many times do you hear me talk about your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, and your family? And what he showed me was is that those are the people that are in play. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your own family, your own spouse. He's putting things in play to take us to another place. So, I don't know, but I think we need to pray right now. Because <laughs> I sure want to get this right. Who's our prayer? Oh, well, that is just perfect. Gene is the one that's praying for us. So Gene, lift up the sermon, lift up another church too. Just, just you know, pray that God gets it right here. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, being able to be back with family. And um, thank you for bringing Kurt and Julie home safely. Um, I pray this morning that you would smash anything in our thought things um, for, uh, for you being able to put back together things, the, the, your perspective and the things that you want us to see in the way that you see them. Amen. Um, give Kurt the 
the, the courage and the, the, just the right words to do and speak what you've given him. And um, Lord, I want to uplift, uh, lift up Christ the King Burlington to you at this time and for their pastor who you, um, has been declared uh, has an inoperable brain tumor. But we know that you're yeah, bigger Lord. than that diagnosis. And so we just uh, ask that your words would just uh, bring life and uh, to him, to that congregation. Thank you that we get to stand with them because they, we are a one body. Amen. So we just ask for your healing over that congregation Thank that you, you would sustain Jesus. them and um, give them uh, exactly what you needed, uh, what you want uh, to each of them in this and uh, for your glory, Lord. Thank, Thank you. you. your name, amen. Let me just add to that, Lord, by the authority that you have given us as agents of yours, it is your heart to heal. It is your capability to heal. It is your setting right what has been perverted and corrupted, and you're just bringing it back to what was supposed to be. So this was not something that was supposed to be, and in Jesus' holy and precious name, we just say, Satan, get thee behind Jesus, be gone, and do not come back. The Lord rebuke you. And we pronounce, as we were given us authority to do, we pronounce and say healing over that man. We say, be healed, body, soul, and spirit, be healed in Jesus' name. And we stand in faith as one in you who heals. In Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Gene. Where we are in Luke is... A couple of weeks, if not days, it's not entirely certain, you can't tell exactly, but we're very close to Jesus being taken up, I mean being crucified, right? And the bottom line is, is that he is now walking down, uh, what happened here? He's now, he started Capernaum, he's all the way down, he was, when we were looking at the passage that we're just about to look at in one second, he's down there by Samaria, he's going around Samaria, but he's right on the border and he's gone down here, and then you see there's just a little, another little stretch, and then he takes a home turn into Jerusalem, okay? And this is all happening. These are, these are uh, somebody just got back from Israel, and one of the things that they said was, they said, I always thought of these things as being distances like we have in America because of cars. You know what I mean? That there's car distances. You know, it's not, it's not anything for us to drive to Bellingham. But how many days does it take you to walk to Bellingham? You know? And so when you get these things in there, how many days would it take? Anybody know? Somebody's probably done it before. I actually know a guy who did. He walked from, uh, where did Steve Weichman walk from? He walked from Arizona someplace to Wyoming. He walked. Didn't do highways. He just walked across barren land. So if you knew him, you would say, yep, that's the kind of guy that would do that. But, but the bottom line is, is that these towns were not as far away from each other as we tend to think that they are. So he's actually very close now, just miles away from Jerusalem. And then he's doing things as he's going. And one of the things that we noted that he was doing that we looked at the last time was this story of the ten lepers. And remember, the likelihood is, it's not, it doesn't say, so we don't know for sure, but there's probably only one Samaritan in there. The rest of them are probably Jewish. It's not clear, but it's possible at the very least. And the point is, is that he heals all of them, but only one comes back. And so what he says about it is one of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back, just one of them shouting praise God, and he fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. And just to repeat, we've already done it, but remember, Samaritans to the Jewish people are cursed people. 
We went into it in great detail, but you're not supposed to put your foot in their, in their land lest you be defiled, but you surely aren't talking with them. You surely are not fellowshipping with them, and God who cursed them is surely not healing them. That's the way the Jewish people think. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's showing how wrong this whole mentality is about this segregation, about this separation. And so what he says is, didn't I heal 10 men? Where's the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. He's saying the Samaritan had faith. The Jewish people did not. <laughs> right? So he's confronting them. Now watch this. Now the next thing that happens is this. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming like you think. It's not coming with something observable. Let me substitute. It's not coming in something physical that you can see. No one will say, look here or there, for you see the kingdom of God is among you. Now here's what he's saying. And we all know this as Christians, right? Because we've seen this play out in our lives. Personally, if you're not a Christian, great to have you here, but there's this thing that happens when you accept Christ, and something changes inside of you, and it's quite dramatic. You know, I was blind, and now I see. So there's this huge change that takes place inside. Having said that, what he's saying is, is the thing that I'm bringing is not what you're wanting. What you're wanting is, you've got Roman oppressors, and you want to, a king to come that is going to throw off the Roman oppressors, going to make us the big new kingdom, and we're going to be in charge of them and give them back maybe a little of their own medicine. They're trying to get free from the oppression in the physical realm. Think about kingdom. This is, they're, th they're looking for a new king, a new King David. See, somebody like that to come that is a military and political leader that will lead them to victory over the oppressors. See it? So this is what they're looking for, and what he says is, is not, not going to happen that way. That is not, I know what you're looking for, and I'm telling you, it isn't going to happen that way. In fact, something quite different is going to happen. It's not going to be in the physical dimension, at least initially. It's going to be in the spiritual dimension. Now, just because I want you to see, right, right now what Jesus is doing is he's prophesying. Now, in a certain sense, it's almost odd to call it, say Jesus is prophesying, because what he's doing instead is he's just telling him what he knows right? It just turns out to be something in the future that we don't know yet. But here's the key to it. He says these things over and over and over again. It's not like he's saying some opaque little thing that's some little sort of horoscopic little vague words that we can interpret to mean something. He's saying incredibly specific things that we don't understand because we have no context to understand them, right? So here's what he's saying. You're not going to see it over there. It's going to be in you. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's watch and see in another place where Jesus is talking and how he does this. Jesus, this is Nicodemus, very important religious figure. He comes to him and says initially, we know that there's got to be something of God going on in you because nobody could do what you're doing unless God was with him. But do notice that Nicodemus, this important religious leader, is coming to him at night. <laughs> when he's not going to be found out because he's trying to figure out what's going on here. Now, he's saying this to Jesus, and Jesus essentially interrupts him and cuts right to the quick. This guy's trying to figure out what's going on. Now, watch what he says. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the what? Kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. See? Unless someone's born again, you can't see it. 
Well, that's not that political thing, is it? What are you doing? Well, I'm doing something different than what you think. But here's the point. He still thinks of it in the physical, so he says, how can anyone be born when he's old? And Nicodemus asks, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? I don't understand this. This doesn't make any sense in the physical. Jesus then replies, I assure you, unless someone is born of water, physical, water birth, physical, the way a mother gives birth to a baby, and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Who's ever born of the flesh is flesh. And whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. In fact, he's going to tell him in a second, why don't you understand this? You should. But he says, the wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Now, he's telling Nicodemus, these next words, he's telling Nicodemus, and why don't you know this? When you were looking for Messiah, why were you looking for a kingdom to throw off the Romans? Why weren't you looking for something spiritual? Why weren't you? And you say, well, how could he know? And you go back to the Old Testament in several different places, but let me give you one that's particularly good. There's a valley of dry bones. And God breathes into it. And suddenly they come to life. Now listen to what God says through Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll take out your stony, stubborn heart, and I'll give you a tender, responsive heart. Tell me exactly how you would describe being born again differently than those words. This is the Old Testament. This is way before Jesus. I'm going to give you a new heart. Isn't that what he's saying? What is it to be born again? Have a new heart. Have a new nature. Have a new understander. I will put my spirit in you. Spirit comes and resides. So that you'll follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Let me paraphrase that. You'll want to do my regulations. Whereas before, you knew what the regulations were and you struggled with them and you, you fought against them and they were an issue for you. You'll have a heart to do them now. Because you'll have a new heart from me, my spirit. I mean, this is not vague wording. <laughs> this is very specific. Now, they can be forgiven for not understanding precisely what was going to happen because it hadn't happened yet. And it's easy for us to look back with those words and say, oh my gosh, what a perfect fulfillment of those words. Right? But do understand something. Jesus is nonetheless holding them accountable to it. He's saying when you took all this stuff and made it physical, it's not like I told you to do that. In fact, I told you to do something different than that. I told you what was going to happen. And you, you should have known it. Now that's a key for our sermon today, for everything we're doing here today. He's given you every reason to know it. He said it plainly, repeatedly, and not just in the word, but he's telling it to you right now again. And he's saying you should know it. So grab a hold of it, right? Now watch. You see this? Does that sound like, now if Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, does this sound like born of the water, born of the spirit? Don't we see this? Don't we get this? Sounds like a fulfillment of those words. And again, here's the key to it. These are not horoscope type words that are so vague that something happens and you can interpret them to have fit. 
These are incredibly specific things he's talking about, right? They're going to be born of the Spirit, like I prophesied. This is going to happen. He's prophesying again right here to Nicodemus in a sense. You see what I mean? And he's telling him, you're going to be made new. You're going to have a new nature. You're going to be born again. This is not generalized words. These are very specific words, which now that people have been born again, the only thing that those ever fit is that. These words do not fit anything else that ever happened in all of human history. But they fit what happened to us when we got saved perfectly, don't they? Prophecy is not vague. It is incredibly specific. We don't understand it because we haven't experienced it yet. So what we're supposed to be doing with this, we're supposed to be keeping it in our hearts and waiting for the fulfillment, even if we don't understand precisely how it works. And when it fulfills, the one thing that you'll know is it'll fulfill. You won't have to wonder. You'll go, well, that's that. See it? And this is precisely what Jesus is telling him when he says, it's not going to be over there. Over here, it's going to be among you. In fact, now watch this. He's talking to the Pharisees, but now he turns to the disciples, but the Pharisees are still right there. And this is what he says. Then he told the disciples, the days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. What's he saying? We know it now, but what's he saying? There's going to come a day when I'm not going to be here and you're going to long to see me. One of the, but you won't see it. They'll say to you, look there, look there. Don't go run after him. He's not, I'm not hiding over here. I didn't come over to this city. Look, when I come back, don't worry about it. The lightning flashes from horizon to horizon, light up the sky, so the Son of Man. When I come back, everybody's going to know. Okay? And then he goes and he says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. First he must suffer many things. And what's he saying? Exactly what's going to happen to him in a matter of days, if not a couple of weeks. You see this? He's telling him. He's already told him before, I'm going to go there and die. He's going to tell him after this again, I'm going to die. He doesn't put it in these words. He says, I'm going to die. But he's telling them right now, I'm going to suffer at somebody's hands. I'm going to die. And then this other thing's going to happen. This kingdom is going to come. See it? Now, just I want to take you one more step before I really start to unpack this. Right there, he has given us a prophecy about the kingdom to come when he dies, when he's risen again, when he makes us new. This is the first thing he's doing, right? But now watch. He immediately goes into a physical thing. Remember the Pharisees asked. And they thought it was physical. He told them it's spiritual. But then he says, but there is going to come a day when I go from lightning, and this is what's going to happen. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it'll be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. But then a flood came and did what? Destroyed them all. It'll be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and just did what? It will be like that on this day that the Son of Man is revealed. Now right here, he is giving us more prophecy, isn't he? He's telling him what's going to happen. But now watch. These are two very different fulfillments. One is spiritual, this one's physical. 
He's just gone into Sodom and Gomorrah and Noah, the flood. When we were doing the series on Revelation, I taught, we talked about something, which was multiple fulfillments of prophecy. See these chairs up here? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine that all of you are sitting and standing right where I am right now, and that you are looking right as I'm looking at these, straight down. You can't go this way, you can't go that way. I'm looking straight ahead. And when I see this right now, what I see is, I just see a stack of three chairs. The word comes, there's three chairs there, he's given us two of those stacks, and he's talked about one thing spiritual, one thing physical. To me, they feel like the same thing. They look like the same thing, don't they? Because right now, all I'm seeing is one stack of chairs. But then what happens is, as time goes on, I'm walking down the line of this prophecy, and all of a sudden, one day, Jesus dies, rises again, the kingdom of God comes, the Holy Spirit falls, all of a sudden, there's a fulfillment of part of the words in that prophecy, and a very specific fulfillment. You can look at what Jesus said, and you can know for certain that those, that's what he was referring to. This thing right here. This is the new kingdom. This is the spiritual kingdom. This is what it is. And it's so specific that anybody who has experienced that is supposed to do something else. This, by the way, was very Jewish. This isn't new to the New Testament. All the time in the Old Testament, there was a prophecy that was given that would have a fulfillment that was pretty soon so that people would know what? Well, See, much of that prophecy got fulfilled right there. Enough so, and more than enough so, that I can really know that that's what God was talking about. And now, I discover that there's excess meaning. There's more to come. But now watch. I'm certain of what's to come because of what's happened. That's how multiple fulfillment works. I understand what's going to come, and I'm supposed to believe it, because he told me something that was, I didn't even understand it. And then it happened, and wow, it was perfectly fulfilled. And so, you see it? And that's supposed to make me really own this thing that's coming. Let me make it clear to you. I'll show you in a second. The Christians in Jerusalem owned it. When they saw stuff start to happen, they bolted. A bunch of Christians left. Okay, so let's do something here now. Now I'm going to make it complicated, but not too complicated. This is, this is a scripture about which there's much debate. It's not hard, but there's debate. Jesus tells them, verse 21, we're, we're in chapter 17 right now. This is 21. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, and he's given a list of things to happen. When you see these things taking place, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. In other words, this next fulfillment is coming. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away from the scene until all these things have taken place. And he's referring to physical manifestations in the world, not the spiritual one. Now, I just want to be careful here. Theologically, he says, when you see all these things take place, and let's call it three quarters to 80 to 90% of all the things that he talked about had in fact come to pass in the days of the people living there, but not 100%. So there's a way to take the scripture and go, well, it got fulfilled, but there's excess meaning. So it's going to be fulfilled again. There's a way of looking at it that says that, but I think, and this is true, that's why, the way we should look at it, but I want you to see what it means that it was fulfilled. And in order to do so, I'm going to do something. 
that I've only, I think, done once in 20 years. This is one of the most important books I've ever read. This is Josephus. How many people know who Josephus is? How many people actually read Josephus? Until I read this book, I didn't know what God meant when he said he was going to destroy and judge. I didn't know what it meant. I could read Sodom and Gomorrah. I could hear about the flood. But they're put in sort of general terms. And it doesn't get down to grassroots about what people were feeling when it was happening. You can see this thing is dog-eared to death and written in and everything else. And what I've always done is I've, I've referred to Josephus many, many times, but what I've always done whenever I referred to him is I said, I'm not going to read it to you, and the reason why is because it's so disturbing. It's disturbing in ways that are, well, let's make it clear why I think I'm supposed to read it today. It's disturbing in ways that are meant to impact your life and change it. This is something God had recorded. Josephus was a, was a historian who was with the Romans. He was from Rome. And there was, a, there was a dispute. There was a bunch of factions after Jesus had died. There's a bunch of people down in Jerusalem and, and Israel that are just sick of waiting for the Roman, for the next Messiah to come. And they keep saying, I'm the Messiah. That was happening when Jesus was there too. He wasn't the only guy claiming to be the Messiah. He's the only one that fulfilled it. But he wasn't the only one claiming it. And after he died, there was lots of people that were claiming to be Messiah. And they were trying to rally the troops of Israel, thinking that they really were Messiah and that they were going to throw off the Roman rule, right? And what happened was, is that finally, this general takes Josephus down to be a historian, but to be a recorder of what happened. And he is thought by all scholars, not all, but the very vast majority of scholars to be an extremely reliable historian. He didn't puff it up. He didn't overstate it. He said it the way that it was, and most scholars will believe what he said. And they'll, they'll see his record as being authoritative. But he was also brought along because he was Jewish. And the general, not understanding Jewish customs, wanted somebody who to interpret Jewishness for him. What are people thinking? What are they doing? Because he's trying to do something. Now, here's what the Roman army does. Now, understand this. When the Roman army comes, you, think, you always think of, well, they meet in the battle, you know, and they meet in the middle, and they all fight until everybody dies. That's not actually the way that it worked with Romans. The Romans were such an overpowering force that what they did with cities is when somebody was doing an insurrection, they would come down and they would go after some big city and they would just surround the whole city. And then they'd just wait till the people got hungry. And then they'd give up. <laughs> they didn't lose a lot of life. There wasn't a lot of battle. There were some skirmishes, sure. You know, as people would try and escape and do things like that. But they would just hold them until these people gave up because they were starving to death. Now, Jerusalem, this was particularly so because Jerusalem at this point in time is a city of about 100,000 people, which for that day and age was a large city. Think about it. They don't have high rises and condos and so on. People needed space and so on. So 100,000 people is a large city in that time. And the bottom line is, is that it's the Passover. And Passover, you remember, is one of those holidays where the whole nation's supposed to come. Now, the whole nation doesn't come. It's not like every single person in the nation comes. But the vast majority of them do, and there were 1.1 million people in the city. Some people were with the numbers lower than that. Josephus is a, is a reliable guide. I'll take him at his word. 1.1 million people in the city of 100,000. When, in 66 AD, they got surrounded by this general, this Roman general. And he expected him to do what? Run out of food pretty quick. There's not, there's not stores for a million point one people in the city. 
He expects them to run out of stores. He expects to derive some sort of peace thing with them, which is basically to say subject them, right? Put a few people to death on crosses and so on and do a little something to scare everybody and then go home. That's what he planned on doing. And he thought it might take a little while. He usually takes a few, you know, it would take a month or a year or maybe a couple of years for this to happen. But bottom line, it was going to happen, right? Well, he surrounds Jerusalem and what happens instead is the people in Jerusalem go crazy. And not because they were in famine. Literally, God stirred the pot and they turned against each other. And they started killing each other in mass. Tens of thousands of people. Well, at one point in time, somebody counted the murders alone, not the, the, the and, it was, and this was earlier on, 128,000 people killed by other Jewish people in the city. Now, famine was taking even more than that. But the bottom line was, is what was happening was these factions were saying, this is the time that God is going to deliver us. Here's the Romans. We're going to overcome them. We're going to get thrown off. So you got to stay with us. But other people were saying, I'm hungry. I'm leaving. And as they would try and leave, the faction would kill them. See? And so then you had factions, and, and the factions started fighting with each other. And they started killing each other. And everybody was killing. And it was literally, you have over and over and over, Josephus saying, that the Roman general was saying, going to Josephus saying, what the hell is wrong with these people? Excuse me, but that's how dramatic it is. He's saying, what is wrong? This is the craziest thing I've ever seen. These people are killing each other, starving to death. They have no sanity in them. This is crazy. He literally is begging Josephus, show me how to stop this. How do I stop them from doing this? This is not what I intended. These people are dying by the tens of thousands, then the hundreds of thousands. And at this point in time, in chapter 6, and I'm, if you are soft of stomach, put your fingers in your ears and say, la, la, la. But instead, I love you. I want you, I want you to in, embrace something that God means to tell us, not just today, but he means to tell us. Because he wants it to be in us. He wants these thoughts to impregnate us because they're important for us to remember. Because when we start thinking about what the end is, he doesn't want us to have any illusions about it maybe being slightly comfortable. He wants us to know the nature of the devastation that's to come. And here's what he says. At this point in time, we're in book six, chapter one, section one. 700,000 people are dead of a 1.1. Thus did the miseries, this is his words, thus did the miseries of Jerusalem grow worse and worse every day, and the seditions, meaning those factions that are fighting each other, were still more irritated by the calamities they were under. What he's trying to say is, is what they should have done was said, oh my gosh, what's going on, and give up, but instead it's firing them up, making them be more like, oh no, we're going to be down to the last man, but we're still going to beat the Romans, and it's firing them up, and he's saying, indeed, the multitude, sorry, Please, just two of these. The multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps upon one another was a horrible sight and produced a, a pestilential. See, we say pestilence. They knew what would happen, dead bodies lying around. That makes people sick. Which was a hindrance to those who would make sallies out of the city, trying to break through this siege and get food and fight the enemy. But as those were to go into battle who had already been used to 10,000 murders, he's saying that they were so murderous in their hearts that they thought it nothing that they had to tread upon dead bodies to get out. 
So they were not terrified, nor did they pity men as they marched over them, nor did they deem this affront offered to the deceased to be any ill omen to themselves. He's saying, at some point in time, over half your city has died. They're literally, sorry, but they're piling bodies in places where there's breaches in the walls so that they plug the walls with dead bodies. And then they're climbing over those dead bodies to go out and have skirmishes to, to fight. And he's saying, what? This is crazy. In fact, he says, they had their right hands already polluted with the murders of their own countrymen. And in that condition, they ran out to fight with foreigners. And this is what Josephus says now. He says, this whole thing seemed to me to have a, to cast a reproach upon God himself as if he were too slow in punishing them. Help me, Jesus. One more. He says himself, look, I'm going to tell you a story, and I want to tell you I don't want to tell you the story. Why should I, why should I describe the shameless impudence that the famine brought on men and they're eating inanimate things? He's saying that people are eating leather and anything that they can chew now just to fill their stomachs. And leather being a somewhat maybe protein source, they're eating their saddles and their straps. And he's saying, but that's nothing. I'm going to relate a matter of fact, the like to which no history relates either among the Greeks or the barbarians. He's saying there's no story like this anywhere. It's horrible to speak of it and incredible when heard. I had, I had indeed, here's, I'm going to paraphrase so that you can hear the wording. What he's trying to say is, I wouldn't tell you, except I need to be compelled to tell you because it's important to hear. But I wish that I didn't even have to tell you the story. I indeed willingly omitted this calamity of ours that I might not seem to deliver what is portentous to prosperity. He's saying this, but it turns out to be important to history. But that I have innumerable witness to it in my own age and besides my country, meaning Jerusalem, Israel, would have had little reason to thank me for suppressing the miseries that she underwent at this time. He's trying to say my, my country needs to hear this. And now, I just love you. Hang with me. I'm telling you, when I read this for the first time, it impregnated me with an understanding that has never left me and has made me much more serious about the gospel, which is the good news. So I don't do this for dramatic effect. I do this to try and put an image in your mind that is real and true that God intended to put in people's minds in order to inspire them about how important this thing of the gospel is. The seditious, what, what he's talking about, excuse me, I'm going to not let you read it. The, the, they're so hungry that they're breaking into houses multiple times a day to try and catch somebody in the act of eating some squirreled away food. And when they catch them eating something, they take it out of their mouth and eat it. So they're breaking in the house all the time, multiple times. They break into this woman's house, and he goes into great detail about who she actually is. It's historical veracity. The seditious came in presently and smelling the horrid scent of this food that this woman had, they threatened her that they would cut her throat immediately. She did not show them what food she had gotten ready. And she replied that she had saved a very fine portion of it for them and withal uncovered what was left of her son. She had already eaten half. And they broke in and smelled something horrible but thought it might be food. Now look what happens to these people. Hereupon they were seized with a horror and amazement of mind and stood astonished at the sight when she said to them, this is my own son. 
And what hath been done was my own doing. Come and eat of this food, for I have eaten of it myself. She then shames them and says, or would you leave a mother the last portions of her own son? <laughs> to try and shame them into letting her keep so that she could eat. Now listen to this. After which those men, these are not, these men have already seen 700,000 people die. After which these men went out trembling, being never so much affrighted at anything as they were at this. Unnatural, unimaginable. So far beyond any of us would have in our reality, right? How does things work? How do, what do things do? How do they really work? We certainly don't think this, do we? Even in the end, you don't think this, do you? Well, God recorded that it is this. And then when he talks about how horrible it is, he's not kidding. And it's important. And in fact, Josephus records, as said Jesus, not one stone was left upon another in the city. The only part of the ancient city that was left is the Wailing Wall. And that's not this part over here. That was built later, and so was this. That's the Wailing Wall. And the only reason it was left is because you can see there's dirt behind it. And it's an embankment, essentially. It's a wall that holds a bunch of dirt. And it's really, it's very difficult to tear it down without killing the people that are tearing it down. So it's the only part of the city that was left. And most people believe that that's where the temple is. The dome on the rock is sitting right up there, and they believe that's where the temple is. Let me do say, for those of you who are interested in it, you can look it up elsewise, it's quite possible that that's actually just the foundation for the fortress of Antonia and that the temple actually sat over here a little bit to the left. And the reason why that's important, not that it's, but when the Antichrist comes, he brings a peace. And one of the ways he brings a peace is that the temple is rebuilt. How can it be rebuilt if the Dome on the Rock is there? Well, what if the temple was actually in a different spot than what we think? So the Dome on the Rock and the temple can both exist, and the Antichrist can bring peace. But that's neither here nor there. Most people think that that's where the temple is, and that's why the Jewish people come and they pray at the only thing that's remaining in the city. But you have to understand, after this destruction happened in 70 AD, they went 150 years, and it was nothing. Jerusalem was nothing. Jerusalem was a large city of commerce and import. It was a seat of government. It was a seat of Roman imperial uh, over the whole area and so on. And nobody could even stand to be there for 150 years. Just a few farmers and so on that would go to their markets and do a few things. And it wasn't until 325 that Constantine, think about it, 150 years is almost as long as George Washington to us. That's how long ago. And it would still be another 100 years plus before anybody would think about rebuilding a city there because of what happened there. But 300 years plus, Constantine rebuilds the city. And then there's a Jerusalem again, even though it's called different names throughout history and so on. Now you just tell me, when Jesus prophesies, just as was in the days of Noah, just as was in the days of Lot, is what I just told you, does it sound like that? Does it sound like we've now had one fulfillment, which is the spiritual kingdom come, born again, but that at this point in time, we've now had a second one? Does it sound like that to you? If that's the case, I'm changing the aspect ratio just because I want you to see it. Where does that put us now? We now know what they felt, and I'm, I can tell you the people in that day and age, when they went out and witnessed and spread the gospel, these things of the end time were very much in their hearts. 
In fact, so much in their hearts. Remember when it said this generation won't pass away except? Remember that? Well, was that word fulfilled? Because see, a lot of people will say, no, it never was. Or some people say, yes, it was in the Roman thing I'm talking about. And that's, it. that's it only. But do understand this. When, when is it that the Jerusalem fell? 70 AD? Right? When did Masada fall? Anybody know that? Rich Bixby, where are you? What, do you remember? No, it's after. Sorry, Rich. Sorry to put you on the spot like that. I apologize. Masada is the very last place to fall because it's a, new, it's a fortress way up in a mountain. It's the very last thing, and it falls in 73 AD. So when is Jesus speaking? What year is it? What year are we in right now? Anybody know? A couple of weeks before he dies, what year does Jesus die in? 33. How long is that? We had a bunch of programmers here. Math. Give me, give me, what, give me how many years? Well, from yeah, 36 to Jerusalem and 40 to the end of a nation. And how long is a generation in Jewish speak? 40 years. Take a look. Was Jesus telling the truth about it or not? In fact, here's how far he was telling the truth. This is a guy who's writing a little bit later, about 66 AD, and he's saying, on the 21st day of the month, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. Remember the Romans circled him in 66 AD? And by the way, this is not the only sign. There's many, many others. There's a, there's a cow that gets, that births a lamb that is testified to in many different places. There's a light that comes on for a half an hour that they don't understand. God did miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle to tell them, this is it. And let me make it clear, the Christians understood that this was it, and they fled. They took heed to it. It's not like they couldn't, everybody couldn't have read it. it wasn't, he wasn't just talking to Christians. Anybody could read it, but the Christians got it. And so, but this happened. We're talking about Jesus coming again. Did he come again back then? Well, kind of yes, kind of no. A certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable. Were not the events, and were not the events that followed so considerable of a nature to deserve signals. In other words, the fall of Jerusalem. So in 66, before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running among the clouds and surrounding cities. Which sounds a little bit to me like when Paul's prophesying, God through Paul, and says, when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven, he'll come with his mighty angels in flaming fire bringing judgment. This is written before this happens. Does that sound a little bit like that? Can I just... We gotta have some laughter in this sermon. <laughs> the Christians got it. On the day a man on the housetop was belonging in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, a man who's in a field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? She turned back and was turned to salt. Whoever tries to make his whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Get out. You try and take your computer with you, you're done. Go back in and get your phone, that's it. Don't go back and get your stuff that was old. Just get out. Now they did. And after this second fulfillment happened, they looked forward and they said, there's still excess meaning here. 
there's still more. That's pretty good fulfillment, don't you think? Pretty true, not vague at all. But there's excess meaning. Where are we right now today? Where are we in this timeline? We're right here, right? We've already seen the kingdom come spiritually. We've already seen an incredible destruction, but there's more things to come in the destruction that's to come. And whereas that's the chariots of fire, Jesus comes back in this next one. And in fact, this is the way that he says it that I really want you to hear because this is the part that God captured my heart with when I changed the sermon to what we're talking about now. I tell you on that night, two will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. Two will be in a field. One will be taken, the other left. Where, Lord, they ask him. And he said to them, where the corpse is, there'll be vultures that will be gathered. And let me just present, permit me just a little bit of fudge factor here. But I just want to go backwards. Two will be in the field and one taken. Your coworkers. Now, does the taken mean that you're going to be raptured up and to the feast in the sky and the people left are going to suffer the judgment to come? That's what most scholars would tell you. Uh, Paul Weston would tell you something different, and Paul might be right. Okay, It might be that the one taken are, and we can kind of see a little indication that that might be right based on what we see right here, because where are they taken to? The people that are taken seem to be taken to a place of death. So there's a little question mark in there. There is. Okay? But that's not what's important, is it? That's not the, the key element is, is that there's two people here, coworkers, and one of your coworkers is being taken to a place of death. And it's not just your coworkers. You could say, this is my fudge factor. You can say two women grinding grain together they don't have to be friends. But think about what women do, particularly when they're working and in that culture. They're working in a very close confinement. They're grinding grain right here together. And, and the, the insinuation is, is that they're not two workers working in the fields. They're two workers working in a more confined space next to each other, so we would, might be able to call them easily friends. See it? But let's just get all the way home. It's not just family. Two, two people are going to be in bed. It doesn't have to be a marital bed, by the way. People didn't always have a bed, and they shared it and so on, but it certainly it does include a marital bed. And one is taken and one is not. I just need to tell you something. Next week, you really need to hear it. And I, I, think, I think God's still doing something important. Certainly going to be praying about it all week, but the deception, and I don't mean right versus left deception. I don't mean that at all. I mean that there's a deception that comes that even the elected be deceived if it were possible. And there's a thing that is happening that is what's put everything in play. And what God's actually doing. And that sort of foreshadows a little bit what we're going to talk about. But I just really want you to understand what we're talking about today is that people that you would have never thought wouldn't get it, won't get it. It's not that it wasn't made clear to them. It's not that they didn't have any of our opportunity to hear it and know it. It's that people that you love will get sidelined and sidetracked. And the love will grow cold. Does anybody know anybody whose love is growing cold right now? Let me make it specific. Does anybody know anybody whose love is growing cold based on this political thing that's happening? I, I know so many people that are making decisions about Christ based on Trump. My God, what a horrible equation. 
But the point is, is something's happening. And I'm not saying that the end is going to necessarily happen in our lifetimes, but do remember, it couldn't have happened at all until Israel became a nation again, 1948. So there is a Jerusalem. There's not a temple yet. But let the world go into flames and somebody comes along and brings peace. Well, now we're right in the middle of what's been prophesied for 4,000 years and then 2,000 years from Jesus. Are, are, we, are we here? I don't want to see anybody end up there. Certainly not anybody that I love. But definitely not anybody that God has put in my way, put in my sphere, put in some, some ability that I might have to help them get there. And I've got to tell you, I'm laying down everything. My, my thoughts about politics. I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm, I'm okay with political discussion and debate. I'm not okay with political flame throwing. But I'm great with political debate. I love it. But I've got to tell you, it is massively secondary to where the secondary is hardly even a factor when it comes to somebody getting saved. And this thing is going sideways on us really fast and really hard. And so what we're doing here at this church is, is I've been wearing this. I thought I'd wear this for one week. I did this a month ago. And, and the idea behind the leather strip was phylacteries, right? You put it on your forehead. The Shema, which is Lord, Lord, God is one. And then it, it's also put, it's put on the left arm because that's the closest to the heart. And the heart comes out, and then you see how it wraps and wraps and wraps and wraps until it wraps all the way out to the furthest finger. And what it's, what it's trying to signify is it's the very furthest reach that you can get. It's the stuff of God in the mind, the stuff of God in the heart being sent out and reached out as far as it can possibly be reached out. That's what those mean. And so that's what this is meant to me now. And I thought I'd be wearing it for a week and then take it off. It bothers me. I don't like it. I have sensitive skin, you know. But I thought I'd be taking it off. I can't take it off. And if you did, by the way, no problem. But I got to tell you, I got a whole bunch more strips sitting up here. And I'm asking you if this sermon is speaking to you, if God is moving in your heart about this being important. I'm asking you, even if you got one at home, come up and grab another one. And there's these, there's these stop and pray things. Put these on your door to remind you what these things are about. And let's get serious. I'm not saying we can't ever have any fun. I'm not saying you can't laugh. I'm not saying you can't go to a movie. I can't, I'm not saying you can't play a board game. But what I am saying, thank you, Kevin, but what I am saying in all seriousness and, and as far as I can is there ought to be something that ought to be always in your heart that is always before all of those things. And that is that God meant for these things to be urgent in us, real in us, motivating us. I can tell you those people in that day were motivated but we aren't. Not really. If they come to the Lord, great. If they don't, well. No, you're the reason why they come to the Lord. God's the only one that can bring them. But blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news. He's using you as his instrument to get to them. That outstretched arm. Lord, in Jesus' name, as people come forward and pick up these leather strips and, and just when you pick them up, then go back and let somebody tie it on there. In Jesus' holy and precious name, as people come forward and pick up on the strip, just, just pick one up and then head back. And if you've still got yours, great. I know a lot of people do. 
But God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we just prayerfully come to you right now and we say to you, as did Isaiah, here am I, Lord, send me. Get me home, Lord. Bring me home, Lord. Bring me into the things that you care about. That's what Kevin talked about, the things you care about. Overcoming the hurts, that's what Gene talked about. God, use me. God, show me how to be used. Don't let me do it in my own strength. Let me do it in your anointing, your empowerment. That's what we're learning. Let me do it in you. In Jesus' 